0: On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue.
1: Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Speer, Editor-at-Large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Joanna Barron and Christine Van Gein, the Executive Director and Litigation Director at the Canadian Constitution Foundation, respectively. They're also the authors of the new book, Pandemic Panic, How Canadian Government Responses to COVID-19 Changed Civil Liberties Forever. I'm grateful to speak with them about the book, including the similarities and differences across the country during the pandemic, and the Lessons for Canadians for Future Emergencies. Joanna and Christine, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. I want to start with a big-picture question to contextualize much of the rest of our conversation. A common line from different governments during the pandemic was that various mandates or restrictions didn't infringe charter rights. A key problem with this explanation, though, is that Section 1 of the Charter permits, quote, reasonable limits on the freedom and rights set out in the Charter itself. How much did Section 1 enable certain government mandates or restrictions that, even if one thought were a good idea, still infringe different rights in the Charter? Or how much did Section 1 create a permissive legal and political culture that generally granted government more leeway for constitutional infringements than perhaps otherwise? Put differently, what's the role of Section 1 of the Charter in your story?
2: Yeah, so interesting question, important question, and of course, Section 1, the proportionality clause is notorious in Canadian constitutional law as a so-called wiggle clause um, that allows courts to justify all manner of infringements and doing so in a way that frankly is quite legislative, you know, weighing risks and benefits and proportionality and stuff like that. The reality is however, in a lot of the COVID challenges, we didn't even get to section one because in a majority of cases, and Christine will chime in if she disagrees with me, In a majority of cases, we see that the judges neglected to even find infringements. Um, And these are in pretty egregious cases. So, for example, well into the pandemic, in the summer of 2021, the CCF brought a challenge uh, against the government's quarantine hotels, which required that travelers at re entering Canada had a mandatory three day quarantine uh, at the cost of about $2,000. And the judge of the Ontario Superior Court called this first world economic problems and neglected to even find a rights infringement. Now, there were cases, and we can talk a bit about why we think this is, where judges could not get away with the fact that there was a rights infringement. And in fact, it was usually conceded by the government. So, for example, um, in, the ch- in some church lockdown cases, Some of which CCF was involved in some of of not it was hard to argue with the fact that shutting locking down churches or in one case Toronto International Celebration Church drastically uh, reducing attendance rates to I believe 10 Christine will uh, correct me if I'm wrong in in a facility that could hold over a thousand parishioners the judge did concede that of course there was uh, a violation of, of religious liberty rights. Um, but found that under the circumstances, um, it was justified and neglected to order an injunction. Um, Christine, anything you want to add on?
3: Yeah, so I was wondering about that when Sean asked that. So I did a control F uh, in the book to see how many times we talk about section one, because a huge frustration during the pandemic was that a lot of these cases were dismissed on procedural grounds. So they were dismissed as moot before the case could even be heard because a lot of these measures were so temporary in nature. There were instances where organizations or individuals were found to not even have standing to have brought the case. So they were dismissed on those procedural grounds. And then there were all the other cases where the courts found there wasn't even a rights violation. So we did a challenge to quarantine hotels. If you remember that, people were forced to stay in these these ho- government contracted hotels at a cost of, you know, between two and three thousand dollars with very little notice when people were already traveling and 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 many people were traveling for extenuating reasons, right? Compassionate reasons. They were going to visit sick loved ones. well the the court said that the, the this requirement to pay for the the country doesn't even engage your mobility rights. It wasn't even a restriction on your right to enter remain in or leave Canada. So we didn't even get to section 1 in that case. In terms of cases where section 1 was engaged, just thinking back and looking through the book, there was a case called Baudouin in in British Columbia where a restriction on outdoor protests was challenged alongside some ch- church gathering restrictions and for this individual who was protesting, the government actually conceded that his Right to freedom of assembly was violated and that his right to expression, I think, was violated and that it wasn't saved by Section 1 and they had changed the legislation or or the order. Bonnie Henry in British Columbia had actually put out a new preamble to that order saying, I acknowledge the right to freedom to, to protest. So I mean, it doesn't really count as as overcoming Section one because the government conceded it and they had changed the legislation. So there was no court analysis in that case. But a big a big thing that stands out is we for the most part didn't get to Section one. There was also in the um, in the judicial review of the government's use of the Emergencies Act. We did make Section one arguments as well. But of course, the decision's not out on that one. So we don't know where the courts landed on that yet.
1: Those are comprehensive answers from the both of you, and they get to precisely why I I wanted to start with the question about Section 1 and its use or disuse or invocation or lack of invocation in pandemic-era litigation. If you put yourself in the shoes of the judges hearing those cases, and as you say, Joanna, knowing that Section 1 represents a potential for so-called wiggle room, why not? Take advantage of it in rendering their decisions. Why? What what do you think explains instead the instinct to, to reject even the premise of infringement in the first place?
2: I think when you read them, their reasons and their own words, and the nice thing about judges and judgments is we get a clear sense and a clear, you know, x ray of their vision. There's just tremendous trepidation, tremendous references to public safety, for example, in the quarantine hotels the judge was extremely distressed by variants of concern, which, by the way, had already entered Canada and been spreading in the community at that point. I think judges are not public health experts. They're not doctors. And there is a tendency in the profession, being that we're generalists, when there's a subject that requires some type of uh, technical understanding, there is to some degree, an understandable desire to defer to governments. Now, we would say that, you know, a year, 18 months, two years into the pandemic, that was no longer acceptable, particularly because maybe we'll get into this in a bit. There were cases where the, 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 the applicants or the parties that were challenging the government law brought their own expert evidence, which is already a heavy evidential burden. But there was a point where it was very clear that just accepting The government's factual record and in the quarantine hotels case, which was a terrible case for the CCF. So I'm surprised we keep bringing it up. Um, But in that (laughs) case, the federal government, we were we were really that was a really dark day for us. We were really dismayed, given that the applicants were people that like had to go to uh, take care of their dying mother, for example, and there was just no sympathy shown. Um, but the federal government's own expert panel, by the time of that lit- litigation, have recommended the discontinuation <laughs> of the quarantine hotels program. Um, and the judge was able to say, well, it's one set of facts. But, you know, the attorney general bought their own set of facts showing, you know, the, the terrible fear that the P1 variant or whichever variant it was would spread. And so it all got lost in this morass. And the default tendency was certainly to just show deference to the the government. What, what do you think, Christine? Why did they? And by the way, just to make a kind of law nerd point, I would prefer to have these types of proportionality, although I'm very critical of Section 1. I want to say there's a violation of Section 7. There's a violation of the right to free speech to equality. And let's talk about the proportionality concerns at the Section 1 stage. I really think it waters down our, you know, our, our constitutional jurisprudence that all of this was sort of Hidden in subtext. I I don't think that's a good thing for the development of our law. And that's something that's gonna stay with us.
3: Yeah. The only thing I'd add is, you know, judges are human beings. And I think that this was a time when just as a a regular person to say anything outside of what the mainstream opinion was on, on COVID was resulted in huge backlash from, you know, friends and family, members of the public if you made some statement online about, you know, maybe maybe this is a little much, guys. Maybe we've taken things too far. You'd be hit with a barrage of, why do you want my grandmother to die? Why are you killing people? And uh, judges are not immune to that. And I think there was a huge desire to participate in the right way of thinking. And there was a lot of about going outside of what mainstream opinion was. And, and judges aren't experts. There, there was a lot of deference across society to public health officials, uh, even, even late on in the pandemic where it became quite obvious to more and more of us that public health officials were operating from a very militant and ideological perspective.
1: I'll move on in a second, but just, I just want to say in parentheses, one of the reasons the book's subtitle How COVID-19 Changed Civil Liberties Forever, I, I think, works is precisely because, as Joanna says, the judges didn't grapple in the public domain between the competing tensions set out in Section 1 and possible infringements. By essentially saying there was no infringement, it sets the stage now for future infringements sort of built off this series of decisions taken over the course of the pandemic. And so... Uh, as a non-lawyer reading the book, I was just struck that section one wasn't the sort of default for most of the decisions taken during the pandemic, given that we were dealing in effect with a series of trade-offs as a matter of public health, as a matter of economic policy, and indeed as a matter of the legal system. Yeah, absolutely. That takes me, I think, to to the question of litigation itself. Why don't you paint a picture for listeners, uh, Joanna and Christine, about the scope and magnitude of litigation during the pandemic era. How much was there roughly? Where was it concentrated if it wasn't concentrated anywhere? And and talk a bit about the litigation process in a period of lockdowns and restrictions and so on.
3: So the book only deals really with litigation directed at the government. So there was a lot of litigation related to, for example, COVID vaccine mandates through employers. We touch on that very briefly just because it's it's a, it's a an issue that our readers are, are really interested in. We have to explain why this is not a huge part of the book and briefly explain what the law is on that. But the litigation that the book discusses, and when we talk about constitutional litigation, we're only talking about government acts towards citizens, not private actors actions towards one another, you know, like your friends and family not wanting to see you because you weren't vaccinated, for example, does not engage our constitution. It is like a private choice. So the book kind of the, the way we address the different types of litigation is we walk through all the different rights. So there's freedom of assembly, talk about the issues in freedom of assembly and cases related to that. So the, the right to freedom of assembly is an interesting one to start with because it's very under-considered by the courts. It Most rights to freedom of assembly, which you think of as assembling in a group, that's what that right is supposed to mean. But for the most part, any time it's been dealt with at the court level, it's through the lens of freedom of expression because a public protest is, of course, a expressive event as well. And there's well-established law on freedom of Expression, much less so on freedom of assembly. So sometimes this is treated treated as a, a subsidiary right to freedom of expression. So it doesn't really have its own test for when that right has been breached. And there became this really interesting question in the pandemic because the pandemic restricted protests, of course, like you were not permitted to gather in groups to express a political idea, but For the first time in Canadian history, we were also prohibited from having Christmas dinners or having friends over or having a birthday party for your child. And this is something the public had never considered as a possibility of something that could happen. These are not expressive events. And the court had an opportunity to develop a a test about whether or not uh, assembly is a standalone right. So there was a case in Newfoundland about a couple who wanted to relocate to that province. And they argued for one of the rights that was being infringed by their inability to move to their second home in Newfoundland and run their business there. One of the rights that was engaged was their right to assembly and the assembling they wanted to do was purely social. And the court, they're kind of two streams of thought in, in theory and, and the academic literature on where this could go and sort of two directions the courts may have gone. And one is to treat assembly as a subsidiary right to expression. And that's what the court in Newfoundland did. They just said, your right to assembly isn't even engaged by your desire to have dinner as a group. Now, I think that that's a difficult line to draw because just the matter, just the fact of, of assembling during the pandemic could could be portrayed or perceived or intended to be a subversive act, right? I, I have to admit, I know a lot of people who had these blinds shut dinners during lockdown periods. And I can tell you, there was a lot of con- conversation during such dinners about the restrictions themselves. So is that not expressive in some manner? And even if it was purely social, does it engage our rights? So really novel questions that the courts could have grappled with, but they just completely avoided it. So that was assembly. We also deal with expression. There were prohibitions on 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 protests, of course, but also sort of unusual and strange cases about expression. There was one particularly pugilistic pastor in Calgary who, you know, he's quite infamous and notorious for making wild statements, including wild statements about COVID. And uh, he was charged with, I think it was violating a court order because he'd been told to stop many times. But as a condition of his bail, the judge created a script for a statement that this pastor needed to read every time he wanted to make a a statement about COVID, like a surgeon this, general's warning, yeah, like this disclaimer about like, well, experts agree that COVID is real and serious and can kill you. Now, here, let me tell you my opinion. With <laughs> after reading this disclaimer, so all kinds of really, really novel issues. I, I won't go on because I can could go on forever. But there's we you know we dealt with assembly, expression, freedom of movement, equality rights there were huge equality rights issues during the pandemic. Democracy and the rule of law, a lot of litigation related to vaccines uh, and vaccine passports. But but I'll stop there.
1: <laughs> How many separate litigations was the CCF involved in during the pandemic?
3: I, I honestly couldn't tell you the answer. To that. I, I'm going
2: to say <laughs> no. something in the range of seven. If, if you look at like the different matters that we intervened in. Yeah, it
3: depends on if you mean like from first instance or as an intervener, because we also intervened in a number of other cases that we didn't bring ourselves but we wanted to participate as a friend of the court to help the court develop a comprehensive view of the law
2: yeah i would say our three biggest um pieces of litigation that we initiated was our challenge to the quarantine hotels which was in june 2021 um and then when was the when did we start the bc vaccine passport case it's it's all a blur to us. Yeah, anyway, in bit, Read rit- the book.
1: Yeah, yeah <laughs> B- British Columbia
2: instituted a vaccine passport system, which did not provide any workable medical exemptions, unlike other provinces. Um, And so we challenged that on the basis of Section 15, the right to equality and other sections of the charter. And then, of course, um, we were one of the first groups to challenge the indication of the Emergencies Act in February of 2022. And we participated in the. Commission hearing, as well as a separate judicial review at federal court. So I would say those were our sort of big cases Um, as an organization. We there were many opportunities and we had to be extremely careful and extremely strategic. And there's a reason why we chose to really throw our organizational weight and resources into those three cases. We thought they had a reasonable prospect of success. And we also just thought the rights violations, quite frankly, were so egregious that somebody had to do something about them.
1: Let's talk about the mandates, mandates and restrictions themselves. Uh, although there was some differentiation across the provinces, there was also a lot of overlap. What were some of the main types of mandates and restrictions and how should we think about them in terms of categories or perhaps in terms of their harm to civil liberties?
3: So I would say something that almost every province had in common was some type of vaccine passport system. So every province had some form, except Nunavut didn't, although they did have, they were subject to the the federal vaccine, proof of vaccination to fly. And for the most part, if you're going to Nunavut, you're flying. I'm actually not sure if there's an, another way to get there. Alberta had a vaccine passport, a proof of vaccine program that was, I think, had a a carve out. You could show a negative test instead. But for the most part, that was consistent across every province. Every province had gathering limit restrictions that also applied to places of worship. And every province seemed to have some difficulty grappling with the notion that places of worship are very fundamental to the way human beings perceive their identity and in-person worship for them, for most people who are religious matters more to them than being able to go into Costco. But most provinces allowed retailers to open while at the same time, keeping churches and other places of worship closed. Then there were, of course, every province had some rule of law type type issues. Alberta in particular had Legislation that they rushed through that gave all it was called Bill 10, uh, Bill Bill, uh, Bill 10, which had all kinds of really overly broad powers that were given to the Minister of Health to create new laws without parliamentary oversight. Uh, the Ontario government likewise had problems with with rule of law issues. They had created this reopening Ontario Act that declared the state of emergency over but brought in all of the emergency regulations and powers into a more permanent state the way that the emergency under the provincial emergencies legislation led the way that that worked was that the regulations expired after 14 days and needed to be renewed and it, that that those built-in sunset clauses are very important for democracy Accountability of our government because it, it it ensures that we're not governing by emergency decree constantly, and the provincial government in Ontario sort of sidestepped that in a in a different way than the Alberta government did, but but still uh, a huge problem. And of course, the federal government did that early on in the pandemic when they tried to bring in this this legislation, this bill that would have given. Spending and taxing authority to cabinet. This didn't pass because, of course, constitutionally, the power to tax and spend belongs to the legislature, not to the executive. And the the legislature and the then leader of the opposition, Andrew Shear, you know, decried this and said, "We will not sign a black blank check to to the Trudeau government." Uh, ultimately, that did not proceed. But every single province had some of the same and and federally had some of the same themes of problems although some provinces had their own unique problems yeah so i
2: was going to say you have like every no province you know even the ones that said we'll never do a vaccine passport every one of them did it but then you had provinces that just went beyond like sorry to call it out but yeah. quebec so like quebec that did curfews, right? And those curfews, I have a lot of friends in the Montreal area. They were actually enforced. Like if you were out walking your dog, that actually happened. Lego threatened to bring in attacks against the unvaccinated, which of course they dropped at some point, but I, I believe that was a serious threat. And then the Atlantic provinces kind of took a pretty sui generis approach very early on. And this was the first point. I think they started, uh, they brought they brought in. Uh, intra-Canada travel restrictions as early as March of 2020. And that was the first time when I was like, oh, wow, like this people, provinces are just, like governments are just going to start violating the constitution left, right and centre. And they really, they really very seriously stuck to it. We talk about in the book, the case of a woman who was unable to go to her own mother's funeral to travel from Nova, Nova Scotia to Newfoundland to attend her mother's funeral, despite having a quarantine plan in place, uh, despite uh, being willing to self isolate. And again, that was not even found to be a rights violation to forbid a child from attending her own mother's funeral. So the Atlantic provinces decided it was necessary for them to bubble up very early on, which is obviously a problem when you live in a federal country where you're guaranteed, you know, the, the right to travel between provinces.
1: Talk about federalism what were the relative roles of the federal provincial local governments in pandemic era mandates and restrictions?
3: Briefly, what I'll say on federalism is there was an argument tried in Newfoundland actually to argue that the restrictions on this bubble on, on going in and out of Newfoundland, that that violated the constitution act 1867, which grants those powers of, of to, to the federal government, not to the provincial government. But that argument didn't get too far. The, the The court found that it was within the scope of the authority of the province to restrict people entering the province, even though on the face of the Constitution, it appears to suggest otherwise.
2: Yeah, well, I think there was a lot of confusion about this that was most manifest during the um, Freedom Convoy protests, that at least some portion of the protesters seemed to think that it was up to Justin Trudeau's government to repeal all vaccine passports and mandates. And obviously that was not the case. It's true that you could say the proximate cause of the protest was this cross-border trucker mandate. But the vaccine passports were all within provincial jurisdiction. And indeed, you did see most of those, I believe, falling away during the weeks of the Freedom Convoy protest. Although, you know, in every case it was claimed to have nothing to do with the mass <laughs> outrage. I'm not not too sure about that. But yeah, no, totally but, unrelated. Yeah. Just totally, a coincidence. Yeah. So, you know, I I, I think People should understand that it's mostly provincial governments that had their hand in things like gathering restrictions, vaccine passports. That is certainly not to excuse the federal government in their role in what we would think is the was the most serious and the sort of granddaddy of all rights violations, suspending all rights in the whole country, including the right to peacefully gather, uh, freezing bank accounts, um, and all other manner of things that they did in February 2022.
0: Sign up for the Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab The Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now.
1: We'll come to the Emergencies Act invocation in a minute, but um, just a couple of, of questions before we get there. You both observed that uh, no province was immune from the infringement of charter rights uh, during this period. But if you were scoring it, which provinces were the best and worst when it came to civil liberties? And, and what would be your explanation for the divergence?
3: We did a report card, I think, early on. In the End pandemic. of 2020. Yeah. yeah, where we ranked things. If I were to update it, I think it would probably be the same. Quebec is last. <laughs> and for a period B- british columbia was leading because they were more circumspect in their restrictions and gatherings were permitted for longer periods of time as i mentioned B- bonnie henry amended the gathering restrictions to ensure it preserved the right to protest uh, other provinces did not do that the where where bc kind of fell away And then I'd end up maybe ranking them lower than Alberta at the end of the day was on their vaccine passport program, which didn't create a workable system for medical exemptions. So we worked with a number of patients who could not get vaccinated for really good faith reasons, like, for example, a teenage girl we were working with who got pericarditis as a result of her first dose of a COVID vaccine. Obviously not an anti-vaxxer. Like, there's no way you can characterize her that way. She went and got vaccinated. She got the most common negative side effect, which is rare, of of heart inflammation. She's ineligible for a second dose of the vaccine. And the government in BC said, well, if you want an exemption on the face of the regulations, what it said is she had to apply every t- every time she wanted to do something. So she wanted to go to a craft show. She had to apply. She wanted to visit her grandmother. She had to apply. She wanted to have dinner with her boyfriend. Because remember, these restrictions applied on private homes. You were not allowed to have an unvaccinated person into your home. You had to ask like members of your family for proof of vaccination. We forget about that. So this teenage girl couldn't go to her Red Cross training, her swim lessons... She was excluded from a lot of things, and this was after years of already having been shut out of her schools and out of socialization. This is a a terrible burden to have placed on a person who's already sick. So uh, I think BC, because of that approach, is just appalling, appalling overreach. So I would end up ranking them lower than Alberta, who did have this alternative vaccine system that allowed you to show proof of a negative test in order to, you know, go about your daily life.
2: I was just ticking them through my head. And it's just a question of like, which one was the least bad. So for (laughs) example, like, you know, Manitoba, I think ended up doing okay. But then initially, they had brought in a similar vaccine passport that had no medical exemptions. And actually, due to the advocacy of Christine, we, uh, we were in touch with a young woman in Manitoba who uh, was unable to be vaccinated also for medical reasons. And we wrote a letter to the government. They ended up dropping that restriction, but they did do some weird things where they banned drive-in church services early in the pandemic. I can't think of anything terrible that Saskatchewan did. Can you?
3: No, Any Saskatchewan
2: I don't. I don't. Wins. Yeah, that's I, the only problem. So yeah. like, I can't say something that I'm just like, literally, what were you thinking? There was no effort, ev- like even Alberta, right? With their weird legislative sidestepping
3: in Bill 10. Yeah. So, Alberta also had some weird things where the gathering restrictions didn't make sense. Like you were allowed to have a certain number of people for a church service, but less if it was a funeral. And like all kinds of things just it seemed like it would there was just a lot of incoherence. And to a degree, I'll forgive the government an extent because I know they're dealing with really rapidly changing circumstances and things require fast action during an emergency and maybe not all of the regulations were keeping up with one another, but there were some periods of like absolute absurdity where the, the gathering restrictions just were completely incoherent in Alberta.
1: Um, you've both mentioned uh, vaccine mandates, uh, which obviously became a cultural and political flashpoint during the pandemic. What is the case law on vaccine mandates and did it apply to COVID-19 vaccines?
3: So, on vaccine mandates, until now, had really applied in certain circumstances. Right? It it was there were workplace requirements if you were in particularly vulnerable workplaces for flu vaccination, for example, uh, and schools for measles vaccination and and other uh, childhood diseases. For the most part, in Ontario, to comply with laws, the the Ontario uh, school mandates for childhood vaccination that would be subject to the charter but the workplace regulations if they're imposed by your employer those would not be constitutional types of those would not engage the constitution so the school the school example and look I'm I I'm I'm pro vaccination like my children are vaccinated against childhood diseases I'm also vaccinated against covid like I look at this from a perspective of fundamental freedoms and preserving liberties and government overreach not from a perspective of of my views on On science. So on the school childhood vaccinations to accommodate religious and conscientious views on vaccination in children, the government struck some balance by creating this course, this mandatory training that parents are asked to go to if they want to exempt their child from the vaccine requirement. Now, this was sort of considered in some academic papers related to COVID vaccination. And the conclusion before these COVID passports were put in place by some academics was you couldn't impose something like this broadly on society, but you know, turns out you could, I I don't think it was constitutional. I have a lot of constitutional skepticism about what happened and on the notion that, as your choices were were taken away from you as as more and more of your daily life was subject to this government requirement, the path became less and less clear about how you could live your life without acquiescing to this government requirement. And I'll just give you an example of Erica, this girl who we represented in Vancouver, who had pericarditis. And sorry, she's from British columbia. We, we were in court in Vancouver. She's not from Vancouver. But she medically could not get vaccinated because it was because of her heart inflammation she got from the first dose. And I asked her because she was frustrated, right? Like she couldn't go and see her boyfriend. She couldn't go to her grandmother. She couldn't go to all of these different activities she wanted to do. And I asked her, do you ever just get frustrated and think like maybe I'll go and get vaccinated, which would be unsafe for her, medically unsafe? And she said, I think about it all the time. And that was, that's what government compulsion is. That's what government compulsion looks like. Removing the choices ahead of you so that you're boxed into making a choice that is physically unsafe for you. That's my concern.
2: Yeah. And the last thing I'll say is that even though it was our clear view that the vaccine mandates were a violation of Section 7, life, liberty, and security of the person, we also just knew based on our experience so far, that that was going to be a very weak argument in court. And we knew that there was no chance of a judge accepting it. That's why we litigated this issue in British Columbia, where it was actually an equality issue, because we knew that clear violations of equality where people, you know, this is is not a matter of choice. This is a matter of, this is my medical condition. We had two other applicants in that case. One was a woman with complex uh, neuropathy, brachial neuritis, And then another woman who had spina bifida and who all were unable to be and to be vaccinated. And so we knew that this would be a harder thing to just sort of proportionality analysis away.
1: I, I want to come now to what, as you said, is the granddaddy of COVID era infringements. And that was the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act to address the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa and similar protests elsewhere. Let me ask a two-part question, Joanna and Christine. First, why do you think the invocation is wrong? And second, talk about the difference between the public hearings and the more conventional legal case going on concerning the invocation of the Emergency Act. How are they different? And what do you expect out of the court proceedings?
3: So on the Emergencies Act, there's sort of, say, two big things. First, the invocation itself was illegal. The threshold, the internal thresholds to invoke the act were not met. And then second, once it was invoked, the regulations created under it, which prohibited protests or materially assisting a protest that may cause a breach of the peace, which, by the way, would apply nationwide, even though the protests at the time were only in Ottawa. And is speculative because it may lead to a breach of the peace and it would include any protests that may lead to a breach of the peace, not just protests related to the convoy. So that, that was unconstitutional as well as the requirement that banks disclose the private banking information to police and to CSIS. This is, you know, lists of transactions that you make on a daily basis. It reveals, you know, where you went for lunch, if you go and see a therapist, how often you buy medication, really personal, detailed information. Like, I don't want my husband looking through my bank account, let alone let alone the police. And this was all handed over to the government to assist in the prosecution of crimes without a warrant. So on, on the threshold for invoking the act, that's a separate argument. And we said that the threshold wasn't met. What you need is a threat to the security of Canada as re- this is required in the legislation that's incorporated in through another piece of legislation called the CSIS Act. And CSIS said that no such threat to the security of Canada existed. Now, the the, the federal cabinet seems to think it has more information than CSIS does and can reach a different conclusion. And threat to the security of Canada means something broader in their understanding than what the entity charged with preserving security and who deals with this legislation on a very every every single day who are experts in this legislation cabinet says that they know better and it includes all kinds of things like economic harm the notion that economic harm constitutes a threat to the security of Canada is something that we absolutely need to resist and I would say to anyone who's listening to this, who might be on the progressive side of the political spectrum, the entire purpose of labor strikes is to cause economic harm. Next time you're engaged in a labor protest, do you want the government to say we can invoke legislation to shut down your, your strike because it's threatening the security of Canada? Absolutely not. These are the types of things that we need to be concerned about when this extraordinary Legislation that acts as a de facto amendment to our constitution because it allows cabinet to create law, criminal law by edict. That's what we're talking about here. And that's what the Trudeau government did in response to essentially their biggest concern was the lack of availability of tow trucks. So it's <laughs> not a serious, serious country sometimes, I think. And it, this is why we, we were the first to. Bring. Uh, I think we were the first, or one of the first, to announce a legal challenge to the federal government's invocation. Joanne, I'll let you speak to the difference between the Public Order Emergency Commission and the judicial review that we that we that we brought.
2: Yeah. So just to add on briefly, we know you know as sort of legal textualists, the meaning of statutes is important to us, and we know from the surrounding Hansard debates around the adoption of the Emergencies Act, which was of course adopted to replace the War Measures Act from Minister Beattie, who really shepherded that, that the whole purpose of linking the standard to the CSIS Act was to avoid concentrating too much power in the subjective judgment of the executive. And we see that's exactly what happened, that the argument of the prime minister at the commission, um, which he was very uh, you know eager to show off, was that he could make the decision, the governor and council could make the decision based on his set of inputs, while also refusing every instance. And commission council was really, you know, I I give them a lot of credit on this. They were very assiduous in trying to extract, you know, what was the legal memo? What was the set of facts? You know, what was, if, if you're saying that you were acting on a separate set of facts, we kind of need to see that. That's kind of what this whole thing is about. And no avail, even though uh, Commissioner Rouleau seemed to also be concerned about the same thing. So in any event, the commission which was held in fall of 2022, in Ottawa is required by statute to be held within a year of the invocation of the act. And so it's required by the law itself. It's not a formal legal hearing, though. It's essentially can be understood as a fact finding exercise to gather evidence and testimony. And the reports finding themselves are not binding, although surely they're very influential. And, you know, there was a lot of public interest In this, not least because you have things like Chrystia Freeland, Justin Trudeau, Katie Telford all being cross-examined, but it's not binding. And if you look at Commissioner Rouleau's conclusion, it's even for an opinion that's not binding, it's very sort of mixed and very equivocal. It says, you know, on balance, I think they were being reasonable, but I also see how somebody else could come to a different conclusion. Um, So for me, it didn't have a ton of persuasive authority. The judicial review of the invocation, um, which is just a judicial review of government action, happened in the federal court in Ottawa in April. And so there will be, a, you know, a formal binding declaration. And it will be the first time that a judge gives us some sense of, you know, what the threshold needs to be, whether this 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 argument about the CSIS Act being incorporated into the Emergencies Act, but only insofar as the governor and council understands the standard of the CSIS Act. I know it's kind of like, you know, a a brain twister to look at this argument. In any event, it looks like the federal government is going to recommend severing the link to the CSIS Act, but it will be a binding declaration. Uh, You know, people have asked, you know, what happens? Does the government have to pay a lot of money? No, that's not the point. You know, that's not the point of constitutional litigation. And it's also ought to be said that this will... uh, for sure, end up going to the Supreme Court of Canada, no matter which side the ruling comes out on, because it's obviously important, precedential litigation.
3: One thing I just want to add to that is even though the two proceedings are different, the Public Order Emergency Commission and the Judicial Review, they're separate, they're not related. But there was a great benefit to having them kind of happen almost simultaneously or right one right after the other. And that's that there were huge amounts of documents that we wanted access to for the judicial review that the federal government was fighting their disclosure over but then because of the power of the inquiry these documents became available publicly and so we were able to get them into the record of the judicial review so that was a huge advantage for us otherwise we would have had to fight repeated motions that we'd already started to get access to these documents that we ultimately were able to rely on
1: i want to put a penultimate question to you as you worked on the book did you come to your own views about what governments ought to do to address a serious public health challenge and still protect civil liberties? What's the Baron Van Guyne plan for future pandemics or other emergencies?
2: I think that for the first part, we certainly are sympathetic to the fact that in the first few weeks, first few months of the outbreak, there was a lot of fear and uncertainty. And I do think it's appropriate. As you know, as judges, as lawyers, we're not epidemiologists, and we should act with caution. There should be a sort of precautionary principle. However, um, when you have a public health emergency that that goes on, there needs to be a recognition that there are several social goods that the, you know, reduction uh, reduction or elimination of transmission of a virus cannot be seen as the only social good. And, you know, as, you know, expert evidence and as we develop, you know, a more sophisticated understanding of the negative repercussions of public health interventions, like I think the most commonly accepted one now is the impact of school closures. It's just, it's way too myopic to just put on tunnel vision and just say, you know, our, our only objective and government's only objective, quite frankly, has to be re, uh, reduction of transmission. So, I would say my under my my view after going through all of what happened and just the sort of just echoes like judges just kind of rattling off each other um, is that there needs to be a much more holistic view of how to deal with public health emergencies.
3: What I would say is I am not a public health expert. I have no idea what the correct. Scientific responses, but this is not the first emergency that Canada has dealt with, and it will not be the last emergency that we deal with. And there's always this instinct for expediency over rights. And we have a supreme law in Canada it's the Constitution. And I look at things from that perspective, from the perspective of a lawyer committed to the principles of fundamental freedoms, constitutionalism, and the rule of law. And we can't—we need to have those as our guiding principles. We can't let expediency and one emergency after another override those principles that are core to who we are as a nation.
1: Final question. What do you think the impact on Canadians has been from this experience? Has it bolstered our civil libertarian streak? And if not, why not?
3: No, it has weakened our civil libertarian streak. And I think that that's a theme throughout this book is that there were continued justifications from the courts and from society at large and to to limit our rights in ways that were overbroad. And I think, you know, one of the examples that we we give is we still take off our boots when we're at the airport, Years after the the shoe bomber or whatever it was that that caused us to do this, what will be the next, you know, public health situation that requires masking? What we will be the next perhaps environmental crisis that results in lockdowns? Have we developed this reflex of limiting rights in any type to deal with any type of political moment of the day? And I had a lot of concerns with what I saw. During the pandemic from society at large and the willingness of people to call the police on their neighbors for having, you know, I had the police called on a a classmate of mine from law school who had a party for her baby in December in her driveway. This is not good for society at all. And the bulldozing of rights in the name of some public good, even if it even if it is good we're supposed to accept that there's difference between individuals in society and that's what we have a constitution for to protect those the the majority from overriding the will of the minority and i saw way too much willingness to simply do that during the pandemic and i'm i i really deeply worry about how, the lasting effects of that and the reflex to go back to that for the next crisis not to be pessimistic but
2: yeah, I mean I'll 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 be the optimist here. I think you're right that certainly if we look at like the sort of the majority of Canadians, that's correct, but the pandemic very certainly had a galvanizing polarizing effect. CCF just like speaking from our own vantage point, we grew tremendously as an organization on just about every metric I can think about. And look, I mean like one of the most notorious I think occurrences that people will remember from the whole pandemic is the Freedom Convoy. We have mixed feelings about that. We don't think that you can just park your truck in, in downtown Ottawa indefinitely, but there is a certain degree, the reason that's, that story was so resonant internationally and you know, when I go to the States, people say, I love Canadian truckers. You even see signs on the side of the road in Michigan. I was there a few weeks ago because it's a symbol of just like, there is a degree of just you know human indignity that people cannot be expected to tolerate. And Canada, given you know how strongly we erred on the side of defer and mask and which we didn't even talk about, and vaccine mandates, I think we did have a really interesting polarizing outcry both amongst the people who discovered that, as you, as you mentioned, it never occurred to anyone before that somebody could be required to show a vaccine passport to go to their family's house. So there has been a sort of galvanized minority. I would. Say.
1: That's a great. A way to wrap up the conversation. The book is Pandemic Panic, How Canadian Government Responses to COVID-19 Changed Civil Liberties Forever. Joanna Barron and Christine Van Gein, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues.
3: Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues brought to you by the Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.